Welcome to Democracy Matters, the new podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. We are delighted to be joined by Dr. Barbara Shaw, who is visiting JMU this week as part of the Office of the President's Madison Vision Series. Dr. Shaw is the current Dean of Arts and Sciences and Professor of Biology at the Washington University in St. Louis. She's also the Mary Dell Chilton Distinguished Professor there. She was the former vice president of the National Academy of Sciences and actually was the first woman elected as vice president, and she served on the NAS for eight years. She was also the 2017 president of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Shaw. It's such a pleasure to be here. We're also joined today by Abe Goldberg, the executive director of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement. Hi, Abe. How are you, Kara? Great to be here. Welcome to you, Dr. Shaw. Thank you. Dr. Shaw, I wonder if you could start today by talking a little bit about how you have used your scientific expertise to advise policy and decision-making processes, including in your role as U.S. Envoy for Science. My background is in genetics and in biology and many of the current issues that face our society often are related to, to biological issues, as well, of course, to environmental issues and medical issues. There's a whole a number of different things that have in areas in science that have direct implications for policy. In a number of different areas, I have served on the National Academy of Sciences on the uh, National Research Council, which is really the operating arm of the academy. And the goal of the National Research Council is to advise the government on issues of science. And so in that role, I've been involved in such things as the Gulf oil spill, the Deepwater Horizon Macondo well oil spill, all the way through genetically modified foods. I've done a lot of work on that, teaching of evolution, and other areas that really span medicine, the behavioral and social sciences, and biological sciences, and, and a lot of public policy as well. And beyond that, I served on President Obama's Council of Science and Technology Advisors, and there were a number of, of studies that we did that directly implicated policy, and in fact, those studies did make policy recommendations. They ranged all the way from workforce development to preserving the nation's environmental capital, to looking at infectious diseases in a potential influenza pandemic. You know, this experience that you have in informing, you know, kind of macro level political actors on policy question using scientists, I'm just curious whether or not you find that policymakers are eager to embrace sciences to inform the decision-making process? Now, that depends on the policymaker. I think some of them are extremely interested in science. Uh, President Obama certainly was. Others, I think, are not interested in science, and I think we're seeing, unfortunately, some backlash against science, and that's deeply concerning. Why, why do you think that is? Why do you think we have seen so much of a backlash, and, and what can scientists do about it? There's an overall anti-intellectual component of, of the national conversation right now, and I'm not sure why that is. Um, I think that's for political scientists and for people in the social sciences to figure out. Well, I, I wonder what you think scientists can do about it. There have been science marches, right? So what scientists can do, that's a really good point, a really good question, because there have been si marches for science. There was a big one in Washington. But I think it has to be much more local 
I think scientists have to be engaged. They have to be engaged with the public. They have to be engaged with their students across the university, not just the science students. They have to be citizens of, of their community. And the communication has to be one of respect with the public, respect for different views, and a ability to communicate the facts as we know them currently, the scientific facts. So I think communication is very important, but it, it has to be done in a way that is appropriate for the audience. We'd have a tendency if um, somebody doesn't understand something to say it again, except louder or even worse, if, you don't if somebody doesn't understand it, well, you just explain it more in detail. And so that is part of the barrier, I think, about explaining science. And I think that rests on the shoulder of scientists. Coming at this from an institution of higher education, I think about how decentralized universities are, how siloed they can often be. Do you think that universities are doing enough to prepare future scientists to advocate for the sciences? One, I don't know across the United States. I think there are many universities where science is siloed, so there is not that kind of cross-disciplinary work. I think that's one of the reasons why having a liberal arts education is so important, because our undergraduate students will get the social sciences, political science, and psychology, and, and economics, as well as studying biology, chemistry, and physics, and I think often not at the table, but really needs to be at the table are the humanities, because the humanities provide us an understanding of culture, of history, of ethics and philosophy, and that's really critical for the appropriate conduct of science. you give to your students, to other academics, to, to fellow scientists about how they would go about actually getting involved in their communities. Not just getting involved in their communities, but also getting involved in the political decision-making processes in the ways that you have. Well, I think it does start in the local community because that's where the politics start. I, I think in the community that I live, uh, there's a lot of very active citizens. Uh, it's part of a community that's close to the university. And the dialogue usually tends to be of, of people discussing the issues in a way that is not as an academic would, but rather having discussions about local issues such as pollution in the stream and discussions in a way that are accessible to everyone. We've also had, in the case of Missouri, a number of scientists, young scientists, who have run for political office. Mm. Unfortunately, didn't win, but I mean, that's another example of, of really stepping forward in, into the political process. We had uh, lunch together before sitting down and having this conversation, and you mentioned a class discussion that you had been a part of this morning here at James Madison University where this topic of ethics was raised. Can you speak to what that experience was? Because I thought it was really interesting as, as an example of ways in which we can kind of communicate the value of our work while at the same time recognizing the inherent challenges in doing so. We had a conversation on two different areas, both of them with very strong ethical components to it. One was the discussion about biological defense against bioterrorism. But the one that was actually even more interesting was a discussion of the news that came out of China about, if you will, a CRISPR baby. CRISPR is a way of genetically of editing 
particular genes. And two children were born from this process. It's something that many of us think is completely unethical for a whole number of reasons. And there were a whole series of ethical norms that were broken at that point. And the students were really engaged in that. We discussed gene editing and the potential that it has for curing diseases, diseases that have a genetic basis. And there's a number of horrible diseases like this. And this offers a therapy that will make people's lives better, will make the quality of life better and the duration of life longer. There is also the use of those potential gene therapies in a very different way to really engineer children with a number of, of characteristics. And the class and certainly all the, everybody in the room did not support this at all. They felt that this was a, if you will, almost a violation of either a religious principle or a violation of, of societal norms. And so we talked a little bit about the slippery slope of doing good for individuals and curing disease, which everybody resonates with, all the way to having, if you will, genetically engineered children and having people being judged by what their DNA is. It's kind of a movie scenario, but in fact, you could see one step into another leading to that kind of a scenario. And so the real question is, where is policy? Where does society's norms come in? And, and where do we regulate this? At what point? And then we talked about different countries and what their roles were and how some countries were much more permissive, some were intermediate like the United States, and some were very restrictive about this kind of, of uh, work. The students were great. It reminds me a lot in, in my own background of thinking about nuclear weapons and the ethics around nuclear weapons and science and the importance to bring in those ethical dimensions and then the subsequent regulation and, and norms around manufacturing, production, use yeah. in a lot of ways. I, I think it's important to remember that the reason that we do science, one, well, some people are curious and that's very important, but the reason that many governments support a very large scientific enterprise is for the good of their society. And so science has an obligation to be in contact with what a society is. And mm -hmm. you can't have science in isolation by itself. It has to meet the kind of ethical and societal norms that we have for it. This is something we talk about a lot here at JMU, is what is the public good of higher education? I went to college really to serve a private good, right? I wanted to be able to get a credential and develop the knowledge and skills to find marketable employment. I don't know that I was necessarily, as an 18-year-old undergrad, thinking about what the public good of my education would be. How do we help convey that message, not only internally, but also to external audiences? that the work that we're doing here truly is serving, specifically within the sciences, the public good. There's a number of undergraduate programs here that I've been really impressed with where you're mixing social sciences with the natural sciences. In those classrooms, it's a really important opportunity to seize about the importance of science and the service that science should have for the public good. It's a little bit harder, I think, to communicate that with the public, and there's been a lot of attempts at that brochures about this crazy scientific discovery that ended up being the basis for a whole new technology. But you have to have people read that. So there, there needs to be other ways of communicating. One of the things that we see in a number of different cities is the enthusiasm that children's science museums have, these very active places where kids can really do lots of different things, and that's a real opportunity. I think education is important, and I think it probably starts earlier in terms of the value of science than, than at a freshman level in college.
Yes, I, I will say in Harrisonburg, they have a STEM day fair um, at our local mall. And it is really incredible because the students from middle school and high school come and set up booths with experiments that the community can come in and they just take over the entire mall on, on a Saturday. And it's really impressive, especially for the size of Harrisonburg, the way in which, you know, they're involving the community, they're involving students, and it gives them, you know, it gives everyone this real hands-on interactive experience. It, it got me to go to a mall on a Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. It took, it, it took science to get us to go to the local mall. Well, I mean, the interesting thing is, of course, then the parents are there as well, um, which is is, is another opportunity. Yeah, we have a similar experience with the American Association for the Advancement of Science. We have Family Science Day at um, at our annual meeting, and there's just hundreds of families with their children, and it's, it's great fun, and it's not only educational, but it also conveys that science can be fun and interesting as opposed to sort of a more typical um, approach that you have to be a genius and you have to wear a white coat and you have to be a male and you have to have frizzy hair in order to be a really good scientist. You only have to be four in my house to, <laughs> to be a scientist. We do lots of quote unquote experiments, experiments. Yeah. and I have the pictures to prove it. <laughs> But I do, I, I appreciate a lot of what you've said about, you know, thinking beyond just our single academic disciplines, right? You've mentioned the humanities and social sciences several times in this conversation and recognizing that there is great value in, in all of these things sort of working together. It can serve scientists better in, in the scientific enterprise. On the flip side, if you might talk a little bit about how you see government policies affecting the ability of science to address issues. This is something that, that you've written a little bit about. Science is something that is uh, tremendously supported by governments, not only basic science, applied science, and, and the whole scientific enterprise much of it is done under government funding. And so the citizens of a country actually, by their taxes, support the scientific enterprise. And just as an aside, that's one of the reasons why science does need to serve society, because society funds it. In particular, the role of universities is the basic discovery, understanding just more about our natural world and how it works. And then very often, industry itself will then begin to take some of those discoveries and then work them into new varieties of crops or technology changes in, in IT or AI, those, those kinds of things. So I think there's a very close relationship between the funding of science and the policies for funding science. Where it becomes a concern is twofold. One, the absolute level of activity, and then where the funds themselves are directed. So one of the things that we've seen is a, a tremendous funding of the National Institute of Health. And that's been spectacular. If you look at the amazing, just amazing developments in medicine, the immunotherapies for cancer, just all of these incredible things that have, have really helped the nation, the health of the nation, that comes from this massive funding. We have other areas that have a lot of potential and receive sometimes less funding. I think a good example is the funding of basic agricultural research. Uh, we have a tendency to think that agriculture is old-fashioned and non-technical, unsophisticated, 
And that's not true at all. I think one of the things that most of my students, when we take them out to a farm actually, to see what goes on, are astounded because farmer is using high-tech equipment, there's computers everywhere, GPS, laser plowing, all kinds of different things. There's a lot of work to be done, particularly in developing varieties that are going to withstand the, the changes that we are experiencing in climates. I wonder if you might talk a little bit more about what you see as sort of pressing issues that science is really working to address. By far, the most pressing is climate change. It's rapidly occurring, and it has tremendous consequences, and we're beginning to feel increased consequences of it. The variation in climate, the variation in the weather pattern, which is a result of global climate change, the intense storms. Hurricane Harvey dumped the Houston area 60 inches of rain. That's mm -hmm. unprecedented. And we've had just a series of these large storms. We've also had variation in temperature. With climate change, not only do you change the mean temperature, but you increase the variance. And because the Earth is warmer, the atmosphere is warmer, it holds more rain, you're getting more rain events, which has consequences. So I see that as, as the number one pressing issue. And if we don't get that right, my fear is future generations are going to point to all of us now and say, you could have done something and you didn't. Do you think the American citizenry is taking this issue seriously yeah, enough right now? Well, I just looked at some data on that, actually. It's very interesting. There's a series of questions that were posed about, do you think climate change is affecting the Earth? And do you think that it's affecting you? So the values usually are above 50%. They're never above 90% on any of these questions. The one that gets the most support from men and women in the United States is, should we invest in renewable energy? Everyone seems to support that. Mm -hmm. But there's sort of this sense that the public lags somewhat behind in what the scientists feel. So the survey sciences, I think the average is about 97% of the scientists understand that the climate is changing. Uh, and 3% have some questions about it, and some, some clearly doubt that it's happening. But that's an overwhelming support, and that's much more so than the citizenry. And the citizenry is also polarized on this question because when you start looking at the partisan breakdown of opinion on this yeah. issue, um, it does tend to be polarized. And so this issue has also been politicized, I think, in a way that makes it very difficult to address. So I wonder how you see scientists kind of addressing that question of politicization or the political problem. Scientists, all that we're capable of doing is, is presenting in a clear way what the science says, what the facts are. And we also need to explain what facts are as opposed to opinion and beliefs. Belief sounds like it's just an idea, like you believe in um, spirits or something, but it's facts. We have thermometers. We can measure climate change. We can measure changes in temperature. We can calculate how intense storms are. And I think presenting that information in a way that's clear and presented in a way that communicates effectively rather than just throwing a whole bunch of information and graphs at people, which is not always easily understood. But, you know, the politicization is really interesting because it is political for climate change. But then you can break down and flip things around. If you look at agriculture and genetically modified plants and animals that we eat, there's not that strong a political uh, association. And a lot of the people that believe and are completely comfortable with the science that supports climate change are completely uncomfortable with the science that supports that there is no harm to genetically modified crops. Mm. And so that's a very, very interesting difference depending on what the topic is. And I think that shows you how complicated it is. It's not just politics. There's a lot of other things going on. 
part of it, I think, also is how we assess risk, perhaps, as, as individuals. <laughs> right. That's right. <laughs> That's an interesting point, because the risk for climate change, people think it's for somebody else. It's not for us. But if you're consuming something, I'm worried about the risk to me. Right. So there is this, this disconnect. You know, going through some of the storms that you described, is it almost too incremental, right? Do we not have that kind of one singular big event that people are going to rally their attention around in order to really say, okay, this is the problem that we're looking at, but because it is these, you know, very serious storms and very serious weather events, is it almost happening too incrementally? Well, it is incremental. The challenge that we have, and I've seen some data on an intensity of rainstorms in Iowa, and you can plot them. And what you see is that the intensity is increasing, but it's doing it at a, a relatively slow rate because you're dealing with a system that's really variable. So some years you have droughts, some years are wet. And then layered on top of that is an, an increase in variability, but you can't pick it out as an observer. You have to look at it statistically. You can see that there's been an increase in those major rain events. But as somebody sitting there over two or three years, you don't notice that. You just know that we're getting a lot of rain. And it seems like there might be some more than we used to have, but that's not much for an average individual to get out there and say, we got to change our policy. I mean, I've seen people refute climate change because it was snowing outside. Yeah, absolutely. A, right. the, the difference between weather and climate. A, a scientist I used to work with, Dr. Arjun Makajani, said that perhaps the framing of this issue from the beginning has been flawed, that maybe we should have called it climate disruption. And I think we called it global warming first, right? Yeah. And so maybe if we would have thought more carefully about that naming and framing at the beginning, it might have been a little bit easier to communicate you know, what, what was actually happening. I, I um, think that's right. I also think that having a presidential candidate at one point who talked about an inconvenient truth, that made things more political. I think that's really unfortunate. Yeah, I believe it was correct, but uh, nonetheless, it, it, it added a political component to the discussion. A, a question about democracy. What would you do to strengthen democracy? Greater citizen participation. We talked about having local scientists engaged in their community. I think that goes for everyone. You have to start at a local level and, and become engaged. That's where policies, that's where government actually impinges on an individual on a day-to-day -day basis. And there's people just saying, well, I don't like this, but not doing anything about it. If you don't like a policy that your local government has, it, it can be changed. I mean, the power literally is in the voters. And if you get enough people behind your policy, what you think is correct, things do change. We've seen that in our local communities. I think everybody has. But the, the lack of engagement, how passive our citizens are, they don't go out and vote in presidential elections, and you, you end up not having representative government. And that's really a concern, I think, having a government that represents only one group of people, whether it be the wealthy, whether it be one political party, whether it be an advocacy group, it doesn't make any difference. For a real democracy, you need to have everybody's viewpoints there and not just have one group that's well-funded or whatever. We have street talk about democracy, and we ask students this question. We, we, we ask a lot of people just when we're out and about as well. Mm -hmm. So different people interpret it in different ways, and, and that's kind of the point of the question, mm -hmm. and, and to hear the different perspectives of what democracy is. We, we recently asked candidates this question. We had a traveling town hall to different residence halls, and it was very interesting to see how different candidates from different parties answered that question. Well, you know, it's interesting. I have um, a colleague who studies the history um, of the founding of the United States. 
United States and is very interested in democracy. And we were discussing some of the, the election results from various elections. Mm -hmm. And his comment was, democracy, it's a great system, but it's also very dangerous. Yeah. Um, Yes. Particularly if you don't have representatives, if you don't have, have people voting and their voices aren't heard, and end up that and gerrymand gerrymandering. Gerrymandering. Right. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And those elections. And those, those, yeah. those primaries. Mm. Primaries. That's really frightening, where you, you, the more extreme you are, the more likely you are to get elected, and then you've got candidates that don't represent the, the will of the people in many cases. That's right. Only 9% of the country chose the two presidential nominees in the 2016 election. And even when, when, you know, in thinking about voter participation, so right now it's it's up among young people. Yeah. Our, our colleagues at Tufts University estimate that 31% of people between 18 and 29 showed up to vote in the 2018 midterm, which is a, a high of, of the 25 years in which they've been collecting this data. Do we celebrate a 31% voter turnout <laughs> as being a high? Right? I mean, I think in some ways it shows, I, I think it is worth celebration or but at least still, recognition, but, but we yeah. have a long way we to have go. work to do. <laughs> we have work to do, yeah. <laughs> Dr. Barbershaw, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by the fabulous Leah Jackson, a rising senior in the School of Media Arts and Design at James Madison University. JMU senior political science major Julia Kravitz also helped us with research for this podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University online at jmu.edu civic. Until next time.